Hey everyone, thanks for checking out the Human Performance Outliers podcast. In case you haven't noticed, we are now up on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com backslash HPO podcast. You can also just click on the link in the podcast notes and it'll take you right to our page. For the listeners that have already joined us, thank you so much. Your support is greatly appreciated. Uh, We have some pretty cool goodies that we're rolling out for the Patreon supporters, including a front-of-the-line Q&A, some early podcast release options, as well as the chance to even join the show. So please consider checking out that page if you haven't yet. Also, if you do listen to us on a podcast hosting site, if you have the option, please consider subscribing. By subscribing, you'll get the most up-to-date episode as soon as it's released. Thank you very much, and enjoy the show. I can see you. Do you want this on video or audio? What do you think, Zach? I mean, it depends uh, on uh, what, the, what the quality sounds like. I mean, it, we put it, some of it on YouTube, so. Yeah, if okay. we have a good connection, we can do some video, um, but it's not a huge deal one way or the other. All right, let me uh, set this up. Can you guys hear me okay? Yeah. I can hear you fine, yeah. Perfect. All right. Here we go. Uh, let me see. Uh that should do it, I think. Nope. There we go. There's a man. He's got a shirt, and he's got his shirt on. <laughs> I do. I always have my shirt on. Awesome. Um, Zach's just going to start recording. We'll just start shooting the shit, man. All cool. right. Yeah, we're ready to roll whenever you All guys right. are. So, so hey, I just want to. Uh, we got we've got. Uh, Rob McDonald, a.k.a. Bobby Maximus, here today. Um, just, you know, for you guys that, that don't know, and, and, and Bobby, I started kind of, I don't know, somewhere about three or four, maybe five, I think about three, at least three or four, maybe five years ago, I came came aware of you through via the, the Jim Jones stuff. And I was watching, you know, some of the videos and some of the little bit of videos you guys snuck out there and looking at your philosophy. I was like, damn, that dude does the same shit I do, basically. <laughs> you know, I, was looking at, I was like, man, that's the same, you know, hard ass, just get it done, put the hard work in, hit the conditioning hard, hit the lifting hard. And I was like, man, I could do that stuff. But that's how I kind of came aware of, you, aware of you. And then I kind of just followed along. And then I saw you did a, you were doing a state cleanse. I just thought it was cool. And I got on Rogan. I was, I was on Rogan's show saying, hey, man, this guy, because, you know, I believe, you know, you correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you fought in the UFC and then, uh, um, you know, I've been gone, gone into, into more of the fitness stuff and train a bunch of high level guys. Uh, and now kind of on your own, doing your own gym now, which is really cool. But let's get into a little bit about just your background a little bit, Bobby, and then we'll talk about some philosophy and we, then we can talk about if you want to, I know you had, you just kind of battled back from, uh, digestive issues. And I think it's important people understand, learn about that stuff. But let's, let's get a little bit of your back, background, if you don't mind, Bobby. Yeah, no, well, first of all, thank you for having me on here. Um, really, really appreciate all the support you, you, you've constantly given me. Um, my background, I probably found my way into strength and conditioning different than most. I didn't know if I always wanted to be in strength and conditioning, frankly. Uh, growing up, if you asked me what I wanted to be, when I grow up, I probably would have said a cop or a teacher. And so I tried both those things. Uh, went to university, got three university degrees, went into teacher's college, took a job teaching, didn't like it, got into policing, and it honestly was okay, but um, for all the police officers out there and emergency service personnel, it's a rough life, like working midnights, working shift work, getting called in for overtime. It's not exactly the greatest life in the world. And so I had the opportunity to get out of it, and I took it. Uh, I was hired to run a gym called Jim Jones, uh, which you know did very, very well. Um, 
And I started my career in strength and conditioning, really. Now, along the way, I'd always trained people on the side. I mean, it wasn't like I was new to it. I'd worked in a you guys know what a good life fitness is? It's very similar to a Gold's or a mm-hmm. 24-7. It's a Canadian chain. I had always worked there. Because of my background in the UFC, I always trained people under the table for money. But I wouldn't have called it a career until I left policing and, and came down here. And then recently, I branched out on my own. Uh, and I'm doing my own kind of thing under the banner of Maximus Gym, Bobby Maximus, whatever you want to call it. I wrote a book for men's health, and things are going really well. Yeah, and let me just because you know with the UFC background, what got you into doing the UFC stuff? How did was that something you'd done while you were a police officer, or was that something you just kind of you started before that, or how did how did you get into that? Honestly, kind of by accident. I had wrestled. Wrestling was my first love. If you ask me what like my thing was, it was always wrestling, and I credit wrestling with you know making me who I am today. Without wrestling, I wouldn't be where I am. And I wanted to make the Olympic team. It was a dream of mine, and I just fell short, and it really, really bothered me. That was one of those pivotal moments in life that I think sparked a fire within me, and I was honestly just needing something to fill that void or to fix in a way uh, like something unaccomplished, if you will. Like I kind of felt like I had unfinished business, and I was lucky enough to meet a guy named Sean Tompkins who – Sean died – uh, about eight years back, but was one of the greatest UFC trainers ever. Uh, he trained Mark Hominick, Sammy Stout, Chris Hordesky, uh, Christoph Szczynski, Dan Henderson, uh, worked with Vitor Belfer, Randy Couture, and some of his guys needed some help wrestling. So he kind of brought me in, and I started wrestling, and I started kickboxing uh, as well. I got pretty good at it. Uh, I was second in the world for amateur kickboxing at one point. And then he came to me one weekend and said, how would you like to go And this is exactly what he said. He goes, how do you want to go to Edmonton or how would you like to go to Edmonton, pick up some girls and make 500 bucks and punch somebody in the face? (laughs) Sign me up. I'm good. So I I went out and I won a fight, won another fight, won another fight, won another fight and kind of found myself in the UFC. And then what what made you what 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 was what was the decision to get out of that? Was it just kind of like you know I know when I stopped playing rugby I, I played pretty decent level rugby and I remember I was thirty years old and I was laying at the bottom of a pile and this Russian guy was kicking me in the head repeatedly because you, you know you're kind of stuck there and I had blood coming out of my ears and I was like f this I'm too old for this crap so yeah, that's what got me out of that. I mean, similar. I got the shit kicked out of me in a fight in two thousand and nine by a guy named Chuck Grigsby. Uh, knocked me out. I was unconscious for five minutes, legs twitching. Like they didn't know if I was coming out of it. Um, Had some neurological problems for about six months after that. And when I look back on my career, I mean, I wasn't a world champion. I wasn't George St. Pierre or Anderson Silva. We weren't making a lot of money back in those days for fighting. I mean, it was $5,000 a fight to get your head kicked in, literally. And it just wasn't wasn't worth it anymore. At at the same time, I just had my son. Uh, He's nine now. And I kind of had to make a choice. Like, you're a full-time fighter or you're a dad. You can't really be both. It's really, really difficult, at least for $5,000 a year. You just can't do it. I mean, the game's changed a little bit right now. There's some money at stake, so might be a little different. But when you have a family to support, fighting ain't paying the bills. At least it wasn't for me. Yeah, and it's, it seems like as that sport grows to, like, it's not enough just to be really good at one discipline. You almost have to be a little bit of a jack of all trades or someone's going to, you know, catch you in a spot that's weak to you. So like in a sport that's, 
the consequences that brutal i can imagine if it's not gonna if it's not gonna like you know pay the bills and then hopefully pay them after you're done retiring it's hard to justify the potential risk no and that's the problem i mean guys are at the point now where you can fight as your full-time job but when i was fighting i mean there's only a few guys making money chuck liddell was making money forrest griffin was making money uh george uh st pierre was making money but the rest of us weren't making a lot at all and you can't support a family on $30,000 a year, but you still have to train six hours a day. So you've got a real choice to make. Like, do you kind of sacrifice your family or do you go for the show? And I made the choice for my family. Sure. What What is it like? Um, I guess, you know, the guys nowadays who can make a full-time career about, I'm sure, looks a little different. But what is like a kind of a typical training day look like in, in preparation for a fight? Because I've heard a lot of stuff about... You know, a lot of these fighters are doing like two, sometimes three workouts a day because they have to kind of more or less, though I, I connect it, you know, I'm in the ultra endurance world. So you guys are kind of a far, far reach in terms of uh, um, specialization from what I do. But I always think of it like kind of like what a triathlete, a triathlete would do where they've got kind of three different disciplines. So they kind of have to divide up where do I put this practice and where do I put that stuff as opposed to kind of. What I do as a runner, you know, you, you do different types of running workouts, but it's all kind of the same mechanic. Um, yeah, so like what is a kind of a typical day of like workouts look like for preparation for a fight or something like that? Yeah, well, when you say jack of all trades, you're right on. Like you can't have a – I'd even word it a little bit differently. I'd say you can't have a weakness these days. It used to be in 2006 when you fought, 2007 even, probably up until 2010. 14, I'd say, is when it really started changing. You could be really good at one discipline. You could have some holes, and you were okay. Now, you've got to be world-class at jiu-jitsu, world-class at wrestling, world-class at kickboxing, which means every day you're training all those things. So when you're talking to guys and they're saying training two, three, four times a day, that's exactly that because you've got jiu-jitsu practice, you've got wrestling practice, you have kickboxing practice, and we haven't even talked about conditioning yet and usually there's some conditioning thrown in there um and then on top of that you've got all the recovery people don't talk about this a lot but sean i know you're big into it with diet and recovery like you can't be a 50 year old monster treating your body like an amusement park you've got to watch what you eat you've got to watch how much you sleep you've got to watch your stress you've got to engage in recovery practices one of the things i'm big into right now is the sauna and the Normatec Air recovery boots. But you've got to be doing that stuff all day. So these guys are running. I mean, if you include recovery and all the disciplines they've got to learn, they're running a nine to five Monday to Friday job. Yeah. Except it's the nine to five. It's seven till nine in the morning, noon till two, four till six, seven till nine at night. It's you're gone for twelve hours a day training. Yeah, and I think you put on top of that when it is time to fight assuming that's the direction someone's heading, it's like you have a pretty narrow window of what weight you have to hit. So on top of balancing all those disciplines and performing at them at a very high level, you have to keep your body at a pretty specific weight range. And if it happens to be that isn't what your body is kind of ideally at or naturally at, there's some work put into that on the nutrition yeah. side as well. You got you to gotta fight against that. And there's become this divide of the guys who can do it full time and the guys that can't. If you can do it full-time, you're going to be something in the sport. If you've got to work on the side, very, very difficult. I'm not saying it can't be done. It's just hard. I mean, imagine trying to – Sean, I know you're a basketball fan. I think you put up a post to you, Duncan, today, which is <laughs> impressive, by the way. But you can't play in the NBA and then have a part-time job working at Target. It just doesn't <laughs> work like that. Like, you, can't, you can't do it. 
Yeah, I mean, it's uh, this is something that uh, just kind of changed the topic just a little bit. You know, I think that, uh, you know, there's this sort of uh, perception out there um, about health. And I think it's something that, uh, you know, you, you see a picture of, you know, you know, if you follow Bobby on Instagram, he's always putting up pictures of him just jacked, you know, nice set of abs and doing some strong stuff that that somehow doesn't. Uh, equate to health there's a lot of you know again i get these people all the time saying well just because you're big and strong and lean you're not healthy you know it doesn't mean you're healthy and, and i and i i sort of take objection to that and saying it is a pretty damn good indicator there aren't hospitals filled up with guys that are doing you know doing what we're doing uh you know it's a fat couch potato guy that sits in the hospital and so um when, when it comes to health i mean well let me just i think there's some things that are valuable from a health standpoint, you know, when we go with, with go with training, and I think you know, maintaining lean muscle mass, maintaining strength, maintaining high levels of conditioning, you know, and, and I'll add to that being ex- being able to maintain the ability to be explosive, to move quickly, to jump far. Um, what are your thoughts on some of that stuff? Because I know you incorporate quite a bit on there. Do you do you feel that that is uh, something that we should all hang on to, or is it only specialized athletes that need to do that stuff? No, I think you have to be athletic for training to be valuable. Listen, I think part of the myth that you're talking about, and I agree, it drives me nuts when people look at me and say, you must be unhealthy. That's not necessarily true. But I think that comes from the old bodybuilding world, mm-hmm. you know, where guys would kind of sit on machines or do isolation exercises and do nothing else. The kind of work that I'm doing, you do build up a base level of cardiovascular fitness. Uh, one of the things I know that you lift heavy all the time Uh, And that's great because it's going to strengthen your ligaments. It's going to strengthen your joints. You're more resilient to injury. If you look at, uh, for example, my wife's really into women's fitness, osteoporosis in older women is a combination of diet and exercise. And so when you look at that type of work, that real athletic work, I think that is where the word longevity comes in. And the people that have been playing sports or doing uh, what I call real functional work Those are the people that can be incredibly fit 50 and 60 year olds. The other people are the people that fall by the wayside. And that's either the people that go to a global gym and just spin on a treadmill or, you know, an elliptical trainer or the people that just do what I call traditional uh, circuit weights. Like the old, do you remember the old Nautilus circuit? You'd sit down, you do a set, you do another set, you do another set and go home. Those are the people that don't get all the benefits from training. Yeah, go ahead, Zach. Yeah, I, just, I think it's interesting because I remember, I, I believe it was on our 20th episode with Dr. Ted Naiman, we were kind of talking about like the world of bodybuilding and kind of physique uh, competition type stuff. And, you know, they've been identified as like, well, yeah, they look absolutely shredded, but they're super unhealthy when they're on the stage. And, and I, I think it was, I think Ted was saying, he's like, well, yeah, probably when they're on the stage, but if you look at their health markers leading up all the way to that kind of very last phase where they start to really kind of cut down to get to the like unsustainable levels of like body fat percentage, they're actually quite healthy. And it's like, you don't walk around the street and see people who look like these physique competitors walking around. So I don't think we have to worry about people getting, you know, like too shredded and lean at this point. I think we're probably fighting a different battle for most folks. Um, so it is kind of interesting how, uh, that 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 world or that kind of approach has kind of been looked at as a way to kind of almost I guess justify not looking good or not using that as a metric of health. Well, no, but people people also don't understand that health's a relative term. Like, who are you using as an example of health? If you're going to take a person who's used steroids for twenty years, 
and is carrying about 60 pounds extra muscle they don't need. And, you know, the wear and tear on the joints long term, like, okay, I get it. That's not healthy, but that's not how, that's such a small percentage of the population. Mm-hmm. That's not going to happen. You're not going to wake up, by the way, looking like Ronnie Coleman or Jay Cutler <laughs> because you sat down and lifted a weight at, at Gold's. Like, it just doesn't happen. You've got to push yourself to the extreme. Mm-hmm. So there's also this, I think, this, um, this, this idea of are you lifting weights to be healthy or are you lifting weights for performance? Because performance, you can argue, you can, you can make some health sacrifices. Like you mentioned rugby, Sean. There's nothing healthy about playing rugby or fighting. But that's not, that's not for everybody. That's a different category than exercise. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, the sports itself can be, you know, obviously the injury potential is high. You know, Zach's out there running, you know, 100-mile races or more. And, and, you know, obviously that that is not a normal physiologic thing to do. But I think the preparation, and this is, you know, I used to like one of the quotes uh, people ask me about, you know, there's a guy named Bobby Knight. I don't, I don't know if you know, remember Bobby Knight, coach for Indianapolis, Indiana Hoosiers, and he was, he was very much – uh, you know, controversial guy because he was he used to yell and scream and throw chairs. But he, you know, one thing he used to say is everyone has a well, everyone has a will to win. Not many people have the will to prepare to win. Mm. And I think that's what I mean. I, I see that in you that you you truly enjoy the process, the training that goes into making you ready for peaking for perform for for competition. And that's what I think. You know, having that capacity and wanting to train and truly enjoying the training and attacking the training is going to make you more resilient, you know, regardless, you know, if you're in a fight, it's going to protect you from, I've never really been injured. I've, you know, I've done high level rugby. I've done, you know, powerlifting at a high level. I've done, you know, Highland games, strongman sports. I've never had a major injury, nothing, you know, minor aches and pains, but I've never torn anything, hurt anything. You know, I broke my nose in, in rugby, but you know, other than that, so I, I've never had any like major injury because I've always prepared well, you know, I was always strong. I my ligaments were strong. You know, my strength to weight ratios were always good. I, I, you know, I prepared to do what I needed to do. And I think those things, you know, and then you prepare yourself for life. You know, it's not like I'm going to walk down the street and, you know, pull my bicep lifting up, a, you know, a suitcase or something like that. And I see this in these guys in their 40s and their 50s. They pick up the end of the couch and their bicep pops off, you know, because they're just not prepared for that stuff anymore. And so I think, you know, again, it's, it's it goes to uh, long term function quality of life and, and again i think it's health well and people tend to use i'm glad you brought that up because people also used to tend tend to use both ends of the extreme like you're either the person that's completely sedentary and sits around all day and that's not healthy or you're the person that's pushing yourself to the limits you know running 140 or 150 miles a week and that's not healthy no one talks about the in-between about exercising for an hour a day about training and so we mm-hmm. get these I think misconceptions from society about what's okay and what's not okay. But what's really funny to me is I'm an asshole for drinking a protein shake or wanting to train an hour a day. But yet the person who drinks every night and sits on the couch all day or works in an office, they're totally good to go. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, and I would be, you know, again, I mean, let's talk about this training philosophy a little bit because you know there's people who think i sit around and i spend three hours a day training i don't i mean you most of my workouts are 45 minutes or less some days on the rowing machine i'll go out and blast out i mean literally three minutes of work and that's it you know and so i mean it's it's not like i'm you know my whole life revolves around this i mean you know you, you put it in but i think again getting the most bang for your buck keeping the intensity high you know most of the time but provided your recovery is good um, you know, and I think obviously diet plays a role in recovery, sleep plays a role in recovery. There's some other 
you know, things you can add in there, whether it's recovery boots or cold, cold therapy or sauna, I think all those things play an important role. But I mean, I, you know, I've been at this stuff for 40 years now. And I mean, it's, it's, you know, I, you know, I think I've got it pretty well dialed in, but I, I think I get the most bang for my buck for the time I put in. Well, you're also a man that's willing to go hard, right? Like, I think one of the things people believe is they have to be in the gym three or four hours a day because their 45 minutes isn't working or their 30 minutes isn't working for them. The reality is they're not willing to go hard enough. Like I talk to people, I mean, if you want to get fit on 15 minutes a day, you can, but for most people, they're not prepared to go hard enough to make those 15 minutes count. And so they then have to think that nobody's 15 minutes can work because you can't just look at yourself in the mirror and be accountable and say, maybe I don't work hard enough. You've got to say, well, I don't have time. I don't have three hours a day. And that's where I think that comes into play. But you can certainly get fit. I mean, you know, if you want to row a thousand meters for time every day or do an all a minute, I think you can be incredibly fit. You just got to be willing to throw yourself on the fire. Yeah, I mean, I, I and I know because I know. Well, let's talk about because uh, you had a little uh, little thing, uh, an airdyne bike where you. I think it was what you hit eighty seven calories in one minute. Was that what was that what you hit or eighty four, eighty seven? I've hit eighty seven and eighty nine are my highest totals on that thing, and both times afterwards. I, I mean, I was praying for death. It hurt <laughs> nothing else I've ever done. Yeah, I can tell you. know, the only the only frustrating thing I have about the airdynes is they're not all calibrated the same. You know, because I had an '86 and I was looking at your numbers like Christ, and then I looked at it and it's a little different. But I've got an I've got an airdyne X at the house right now uh, from Octane Fitness, which is a beast. It's like the beasted up version. I kept breaking my '86. I go so hard the damn pedals would start breaking and yep. stuff. But um, you know that. You know, and again, I've an all-out minute on those things. Literally, you feel like you're going to drown. I mean, your lungs. I swear, it seems like your lungs are filling up with fluid. I mean, it's awful. It's probably one of the most horrendous experiences. And I mean, I say this as a guy who's you know actually broken some records on on the rowing machine, and you know, and comparing the difference, I find that piece of equipment for that type of intensity is probably the hardest I've found. Have you found anything that quite compares to that in what you've done over the years? The, the only thing is, I'll call it the classic 400-meter run for time. If you really, truly run 400 meters as hard as you can, it can be brutal. Where I think the bike has an advantage is with running, You usually if you go all out, you slow down about the 300-meter mark, and the last little bit becomes non-useful, if you will, unless you're a highly trained athlete. There's something about that bike you can just keep spinning and spinning and spinning, and so you get a full... 60 seconds and it just annihilates you the other thing is is it requires a quadrupedal movement which really depending on you know who you want to listen to roughly doubles the oxygen cost so i i I talk to people about this when you look at animals and you see their vo2 maxes they're super high because they favor quadrupedal movement they use all four limbs a lot of the exercise stuff we use like the rower it's 85% legs, maybe 15% arms, so you don't get that oxygen burn. When you go on the airdyne and you're pumping with your arms and your legs, the oxygen burn just, I mean, it's it, it just tremendous. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I know uh, when we had Professor Noakes on the show too, I think, Sean, you had you made a comment about how like the human body should be able to handle a faster pace for like um, an all-out sprint than what the world records would indicate. And he said something about the limitation being the hamstring and the mechanics of kind of the bipedal on that on that type of surface. So it's interesting to think like, yeah, when you add that 
third and fourth appendage in terms of being able to kind of put out energy, what the difference is going to be. Yeah, the cost goes through the roof. So it, it, it just, I mean, you're right, Sean. I mean, literally you're drowning because your lungs and heart can't keep up with the demand. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that. I mean, again, people always ask me what I prefer if, if, I want, if I were to get a bike or a rowing machine. And I said, if your goal is maximum metabolic kicking yourself in the ass, go get the bike. You know, as much as I like doing the rowing stuff, cause I, just because I'm built for rowing, you know, I'm tall, I'm long, I'm relatively strong, so I'm suited for rowing. But, I mean, that, that damn bike is... I mean, it scares me every time I walk by it, you know. <laughs> and I mean, I'm not scared of a lot of things. When I see that thing, and I just know how much agony it is. But it's a great tool, and so it's impressive. You know, I've, I've got to get up there and get my minute up there and see what I can do on this thing. You know, I, I know I've half a minute I've done about 47 calories, which is, you know, obviously I'm not going to be able to maintain that pace for the whole minute. But, you know, I'm just trying to try to keep going there. But, again, I'm an old guy, so we'll have to see. <laughs> I'll, give you, I'll give you another trick because yeah. I know every way to cheat a workout possible. Yeah. You actually get more calories when you're at higher altitude. Do you really? Okay. Yes, Interesting. Because those bikes are – and this sounds funny. Even with the Concept 2, I don't know if you've ever rode at 5,000 you know, feet of, of, of elevation. But the damper settings, the drag settings feel differently. So what happens is the air's thinner up here, so the wheel turns faster. There's less resistance. Mm-hmm. Well, the way the Airdyne calibrates calories is it's going basically off RPMs or how fast that wheel's spinning, giving you a wattage total, converting it to calories. Well, you may be able to go three or four RPMs faster at a higher elevation. Therefore, you get a higher output. So if yeah. you are going to break a record, do it at an elevation. Yeah, I think it's uh... – you know, and it depends on the distance. Obviously, the, 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 there's a diminishing point of returns after your time gets too far. And if you're, you know, if you're on there for an hour or 20 minutes, and then, then the altitude's going to be a net negative. But yeah, it's something that that and the air temperature too. You know, the uh, the, the warmer the air is, actually, that you know, it's going to be thinner and it's going to it's going to have the same effect. And so I'm aware of that because I I've trained. I used to train on the rower up in Albuquerque, which as you may know is not too far away from what you're at at Salt Lake uh, at about five fifty five hundred feet. And then I'll drop back down to sea level. And I've been going back and forth. And that kind of sucked because I was constantly adapting to that stuff. And so that was always a, a little bit a little bit of a challenge, you know, when I go there and, and do that stuff. But it depended on the distance I found. Like for the shorter stuff, the altitude wasn't as much of an issue. But I, I like when I when I row, I like a lot of drag. It's because I, I, I pull a big hard stroke. And that seems to help uh, for yeah, what I do. Sorry to interrupt. But if you look at the drag factor on a rower, if you put it to a 10, the drag factor at sea level is usually 202 to 215. At altitude, it's somewhere between 168 and 180. So you can't get that big pull. So I know guys that will do all kinds of stuff at altitude, like start cutting away pieces of the wheel housing of the rower to get more air in to artificially increase the drag. Yeah, no, I play with all this stuff. I train with a with a guy named Zeno Muller who is an Olympic gold medalist, and he told me take off the take off the cover, you know, and yep. train it to put a bunch of drag. And so I was rolling against a drag factor of about three fifty, you know, wow. which was which is which is pretty heavy. But uh, you know, just having a big strong deadlift, it, it suited me pretty well. And so I've done that quite a bit. Let me ask you. So let's just pretend, you know, because I because you do a lot of you know you do some body weight stuff, you do some lightweight stuff, you do a lot of high rep stuff, and I, you know, people always try to ask me what's the best way to put on muscle? Is it low reps? Is it high reps? And my answer always is it's, it's both. You know, I think you need a variety. I think you need to do that. And I see that one in, in the way you work out. You know, you've got days where you're just sitting there with just a bar, 
doing curls for 20 minutes straight till your arms fall off. And then there's days where you're doing heavy deadlifts. And so talk a little bit about your philosophy on how you approach, uh, you know, optimizing your body for both function, aesthetics and, and uh, you know, athleticism. Yeah. So there's there's a couple of misconceptions, I think. I'll address hypertrophy first. The most important aspect to hypertrophy, in my opinion, is acidity in the muscles. You'll see, uh, you ever see a track cyclist quads? They're enormous. Like they don't look human. And that's because of high acidity. It's not because they're pushing a tremendous amount of weight or doing reps and sets to failure in the gym. It's acidity. So you talk about that all out minute on the bike. You could theoretically put on a lot of muscle from just doing an all out minute on the bike because your legs are at that much acidity. And the human body's response to acidity is to put on some muscle. So you want to do light reps. Uh, or, or sorry, lightweight and high reps, you could certainly get big off that. And that's like that thing I do where I lift an empty barbell for 20 minutes or I do the classic, um, actually, I wouldn't even use myself. I'll use Herschel Walker as an example for this. I don't know if you remember him, how fit he was, sure. but it was push-ups, pull-ups, and dips. That's mm-hmm. all it is. And you build a high amount of acidity and your muscles, they, they grow. Now, if you're interested in truly getting strong, though, you've got to lift heavy. And that's a little different. Remember, though, strength is a relative term. I've seen people on high rep, uh, low weight, get a 500-pound deadlift. But what we don't realize is that's not that strong. I mean, Eddie Hall, uh, I got the chance to train with him when I was in Britain, deadlifted 500 kilos. Hmm. Like, you you, you want to get to that level, you've got to lift heavy to get strong. But I've seen a lot of people on light to medium weight, like I said, get a fairly respectable deadlift or squat or or bench press um and it's interesting because people will talk about this idea of uh sarcoplasmic hypertrophy and it's nonsense if you were to take a bodybuilder's arm cut it in half or a powerlifter's arm and cut it in half assuming they're the same size the muscles don't form differently they look exactly the same the differences in strength become what i'll call neurological and so uh for neurologic type strength you've got to lift heavy to to, to perform. And so I do a mix of both. And the reason I do a mix of both is because unlike you, Sean, I have been hurt a lot. I blow my ACL, MCL, LCL. I've had a punctured lung. I've broken my collarbone. Uh, I've had three shoulder surgeries, uh, torn both my ankles. And so, uh, I, I find that a mix of heavy weight to stimulate good chemicals like testosterone and human growth hormone to neurologically train strength, uh, mixed with a bunch of lighter weight stuff for form, uh, and, and what I'll call recovery. And it's kind of like what I call a tune up for my, for my engine, if you will, a mixture of that is what's allowed me to have some form of longevity. Yeah. One thing that I, you know, and, and again, I get people that, that have, that frame everything through bodybuilding. You know, it's like, it's only about hypertrophy and, you know, this is big in the sort of the so-called, you know, high intensity training crowd where it's all about, you know, slow contractions. You know, it's all about time under tension and, 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 and everything's through this frame of, uh, you know, maximum hypertrophy. And then they're going to argue that cross-sectional muscle area ultimately results in strength. But I do think they overlook the neurologic component. You know, and I think this, strength training is a skill just like anything else. You know, Olympic lifting, you know, clearly that's a skill. But anything you do other than standing there and flexing your muscles is, is going to have some, some component of skill, some, some component of uh, neuromuscular efficiency that you have to train. You know, when I was throwing Highland games and learning how to shot put, and I was shot putting with John Godina, 
you know, world championship. I mean, just how incredibly skillful that is. And I know you see that, you know, when you're doing jujitsu, there's so much skill that's involved in this stuff. And so you have to go beyond just how much can I get the biggest biceps, you know? And so, you know, I look at that and I say, you know, what are you doing to, to adapt neurologically? What are your goals? You know, ultimately, if your goal is to be Mr. Olympia, and it's not to take anything away from those athletes, obviously, they're putting a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of dedication, a lot of nutrition, you know, you know mostly a lot of drugs as well. It's just call a spade a spade. But, um, you know, it's something that I think many people, again, they, 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 they look at bodybuilding as the be all end all of what training is about. And I, and I, I tend to look at things differently. I look at what I want to be able to do as a, as a 50 something year old guy, you know, I'd want to be able to run, run with my kids, not only play with my kids, but beat my kids, you know, and just a little, little ego get in there, you know, and it's something, you know, when I'm a grandfather, I don't want to, I don't want to have to be the guy sitting around, you know, watching the kids play. I want to be able to do that stuff. And so I think to do that thing, you have to be able to do more than just, you know, have big biceps. No. And it's also highly individualized. Like, I mean, you can, you can put two people on the same training program and they can have a wildly different effect. And, and, you know, with your, with your background in medicine, what's, you know, I ask people all this question and it's confusing to them, but what's the number one predictor of a, of a future outcome in, and I'll call it health and wellness and it's family history. Like if all four of your grandparents had cancer, you're probably going to get cancer. If all four of your grandparents had heart disease, well, your chances of heart disease go up. If, if, if some other disease runs in the family, you're, you know, and so the same thing is with your muscles. There are people, Sean, who I've met that are skinny, that cannot put on a pound no matter what exercises you give them. I've met other people who look at a weight, frankly, and put on size because of a genetic component. We want to ignore that. We want to say that there isn't one, but there is. So it's different programs for different people as well. And you've got to find what works for you. I've got to find what works for me. And uh, Zach, you've got to find what works for you. Yeah, it's always interesting. I think, you know, you see that a lot in, in the endurance community too. You have, you know, folks who they, they're, they're just naturally, and, and the, they tend to be the ones that kind of, you know, get to the, I guess, professional level. They're just kind of naturally like slender builds and can just seemingly eat everything in sight and stay, stay lean and have a really good power weight ratio without kind of getting weak. And then you get other folks who are just, you know, a little more sturdy built and they can still run fast given the right stimulus, but it, it just looks different. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. And there's also the, the other interesting thing is how you've been conditioned since you were born. Mm-hmm. Because by the time a person gets 25 and finds the gym, I think it's also very difficult to separate the nature versus nurture. So there's a guy named uh, Rico Elmer who was a world-famous kind of ski mountaineering type guy uh, running in the mountains. And he was raised in the Alps herding sheep. Mm. So if you do that kind of work since you're three years old and you're up and down and up and down and up and down, and I'm talking thousands and thousands and thousands of, of elevation, feet of elevation gain a week, how good is your cardiovascular system going to be developed by the time you're 22 or 23? Mm-hmm. It's going to be incredible. At the same token, if you have a kid who's been lifting weights, and the Russians did a lot of studies on this, if you start kids at weightlifting at seven or eight, it's incredible how strong they can be when they're in their 20s. It's different if you take a sedentary a, a, a sedentary person at the age of 25 and introduce them to weights. Is that a genetic component now or is that just a lifetime of uh, ignorance, laziness, uh, ignoring their potential? And what's the, the cost of that? 
Yeah, you know, it, it's it's actually really interesting, and I think uh, in the world of ultra endurance on the mountain side, I mean, this sport's kind of goofy, where like we call everything ultra marathon that's over a marathon, but really they, there's some events that couldn't be any further from one another in terms of how you prepare for them and stuff, but. Um, one of the kind of segments of the sport that's really gotten popular the last few years is kind of the mountain running side. And, you know, that can range from short distance mountain races all the way up to like super long ones, hundred plus mile type stuff. And the guy who's kind of unarguably the best in the sport right now is this guy named Killian Journey and his parents were mountaineers and he was literally crawling and running around in the mountains by the age of three. Um, and he's been doing that his whole life. And on top of that, like, you know, he's been put in the lab enough times where like you see some of the markers that he has and they're like off the charts he's like tour de france style vo2 max like the guy's like the like he's been on record saying that most races he only pushes about 80 percent full capacity and you know he's winning and breaking course records so it's like you know it's really interesting to see what happens when you take someone who has probably got good genes you know his parents were mountaineers i'm not sure what his grandparents did but they were probably not sitting on the couch um, and then you have him and then you stimulate him in the way that is going to make him like just really good at moving long distances through altitude, like technical terrain and stuff like that. So he develops the skill sets and kind of the mechanics for that. And then you have kind of a once in a, a once in a generation type of guy in terms of what they can do out there. Well, I want to say, what was his VO2 max? I want to say it was 91 or 92. Yeah. It was absurd mm-hmm. how high it was. Yeah. But like, Sean, I'd have a question for you. If at three years old, your parents had you running 100 miles a week, how different would your body be right now? I mean, if you do that from the, you know, the formative years of three to 21 or 22, you're going to be built for that sport for the rest of your life. And I think we mm-hmm. ignore that, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think, I think uh, I've read something. I don't, there's a, there's a uh, sports physiologist named Jan Lemur out of France, and he's put up – I've seen stuff from him talking about uh, – Kids that begin, well, let's just talk about strength training, you know, prepubescent, you know, four or five, six years of age have a much greater, you know, final outcome as far as their athletic potential than kids that start at 14, you know, in adolescence like I did. I started 13, 13, 14 years of age. And so, you know, had I started at five or six, you know, I've got a, I've got a daughter who's, she just turned 10. And I mean, she is like, I mean, incredibly strong. I mean, she's doing muscle ups. She can do a hundred double under, she can deadlift you know, 150 pounds. I mean, she, you know, and, and, you know, that's what they can do. And so I'll be be interested to see what her potential is, but I mean, clearly starting young is interesting. You know, we talked about altitude, you know, when I was, uh, when I was, uh, Oh, back in 2000, I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, you know, I went up there. that's about 19,000 feet. So it's way up there. And we had a guide who was a guy who's been, who's done it, you know, all his life. He's been going up there and we're all struggling obviously, but he's acclimated to stuff. And he gets up to the top and he's up there smoking a cigarette. And there's only like, I mean, there's only like three friggin' oxygen, mo- oxygen molecules up there. You know, <laughs> we're like, damn it. You know, and he's in there smoking a cigarette. We're out there dying. I mean, literally it was like, you'd take two or three steps and you'd have to take a couple steps breaths to recover. It was that hard once you get that high. I got up there and I did 50 push-ups at the top of my Kilimanjaro. And then I breathed hard for about three hours afterwards. <laughs> but I mean, it's just, you know, you, you've got these people, but he's acclimated to this stuff. You know, he's up, he's, but he goes up there every couple of days. He, he made the trip, you know, and it's just uh, funny how, uh, yeah, you're right. What you, what your body can adapt to. I mean, there's people, I've seen these, these deep sea divers that live in, uh, I don't know, maybe it's Tahiti or Fiji or some, one of these, one of the Pacific Island folks there, they're kind of a, adapted to, to, to breathing underwater and they can, they can get underwater for, you know, seeming like 
ridiculous, you know, something like 10 minutes or something ridiculous, like they're, like they're dolphins or something like that. Well, and it also works the other way. I mean, I've trained enough people to know you get a 40-year-old who's 300 pounds that comes through the doors that wants to lose weight that's never done anything physical in their life. It's a really hard battle. They'll almost never get to our level of fitness because they can't. That ship has sailed. They can maybe look good. They can maybe do a lot better than what they're doing. But it's really hard to, you know, how long does it take to overwrite 40 years of bad behavior? And then mm. what kind of damage would you have to do now, Sean, like a guy like you who's really fit? What would you have to do to get unfit now? I mean, you'd have to work at it. You'd have to quit working out. You'd have to eat a terrible diet. You'd have to really limit even what I call daily activity. Like, you know, I can't shovel the driveway today. It's too much work because that would help you maintain a certain level of fitness. You can't cut the grass. <laughs> you can't walk you can't have stairs in your house i mean what would you have to do to become that 300 pound person that is 40 percent body weight that has a vo2 max of 20 like it, it's all it's almost like it wouldn't happen right now because you've had a lifetime of fitness well i mean you know psychologically it couldn't happen i you know i, I would literally go crazy i mean I, I'm, I'm sure you're the same way if you miss working out for more than a day or two it's like ah you know i got to do something so I, I don't know what i would have to, i'd have to change my, my mind psychological because now it's it's ingrained in me as as it is eating sleeping and breathing i mean it's like brushing my teeth okay i got exercise today and i and i and i enjoy it but yeah i mean you're right it you know certainly you know it's kind of funny i did the, an experiment the last two months where i just rode i didn't do any i mean grant i'm rowing pretty friggin' hard but i didn't do any lifting at all. i lifted zero weights in about two weeks two months which is I don't think i've ever done that before and i went back to the gym this week and i literally lost almost nothing which i yep. think is pretty 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 cool i think part of that has to do with the fact that i'm eating like you know five thousand grams of protein a day <laughs> you know <laughs> i mean i'm being facetious there but I, I do think there's something to that and so hey let's talk a little bit about because you you know speaking of that because you went through a period of time this year where you dropped you lost like 40 pounds or 50 pounds of body weight due yep. to illness can you can we get into that a little bit yeah um so i contracted this disease called clostridium difficile it's known as c diff and to be honest with you, when I got it, I didn't think it was that serious. The doctor, I'd never heard of it, by the way. Uh, the doctor I went to said, it's not a big deal. You have this stomach infection, take some meds. So I took some meds and it didn't clear up. So they gave me more antibiotics. It didn't clear up. More antibiotics. It didn't clear up. And then I bottomed out. I lost 47 pounds in 30 days. Uh, <laughs> they wanted to remove my colon a couple of times. I was in and out of the hospital. Uh, I was shitting blood. I mean, I was a mess. So I started doing some research on it. That's when I kind of got in touch with you and was like, hey, what do you know about this? And I found out that one in five die from this disease. Like it's really, really, it can be a very serious thing. Um, finally cleared it up through something called a fecal matter transplant. Um, I was able to, you know, clear up the, the disease, if you will. But I've been left with uh, ulcerative colitis. The worst part about this is the amount of misinformation we have out there from so-called medical professionals uh, on the gut. It, it, it's almost like we know nothing about the gut, almost like the brain and concussions. We don't know a lot about how it functions. And so I was told never eat meat again. So I'd shop around for a second opinion because that doesn't work for me. And I don't believe that, by the way. And then another person would tell me never eat vegetables again. And I'm like, well, which one is it, guys? Like, can I get an answer? Or can you pick one? And are you basing this on science? Or is this just what you learned? Or is this what you heard? Or is this what you 
And so it became very, very frustrating for me. So I've been battling, uh, I'll say, stomach issues for now. Uh, I'm going to say it's 10 and 11 months, and I'm far better now than I was three months ago and way better than I was six months ago, but it's still been quite an interesting journey, I'd say, into education, regaining my fitness, and also fixing my problems. Yeah, I know you've talked, I've, I've seen you post stuff you're using, I think it's called Viome or it's yep. a U-Biome or something like that because you're, 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 you're playing with your, your gut microbiome. And I will tell you that, you know, we're still learning quite a bit about that. I know there's a lot of people that try to um, tell us that, you know, we can, you know, tell you what fiber to take or what probiotic to take. I don't think we're at that point yet. I think we're still speculating on that stuff. And so ultimately, I think you're going to have to go with, you know, how you're doing symptomatically. And I think you can figure that out if you're, if you're smart enough. And one of the reasons, you know, again, as you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a fairly big proponent of a carnivorous diet for these types of things. And we're finding that people do do pretty well. Meat seems to be pretty benign for the gut. Now, beyond that, I think it becomes individual. And I think there's things that clearly are bad, things like processed oils, vegetable oils, you know, some kind of medications can clearly be in there. And then beyond that, I think there's some there's some separation safe separation there, and so I think you ultimately have to do what works for you, in finding that out. And it sounds like you're starting to do that, and you're, you're putting in the clues in there. And you're right, there are a lot of things. As someone who's practiced mainstream medicine for 20 plus years, there are a lot of things we're clueless about. We really are, and a lot of the a lot of the assumptions we've made and the basis of what we base things on are really not that good. And so you know we're we're finding out, uh, you know. For those people that care to find out and look at what's going on with people, that, that there's a lot of things we can learn from from just, you know, observing people and see what actually happens rather than, than, than looking what uh, a study that may not have been done appropriately or, or made some, some uh, assumptions that weren't necessarily true. Yeah, and for me, again, it's I mentioned this with working out, but it's that individual component. You said it best. Figure out what works for you and individual variances and tolerances and get feedback. And so... What this company Biome does is they test your stool for, I want to say, for about 500 different types of bacteria. And they tell you what foods work for your biome and what doesn't work for your biome. And it's funny because the list that I got back of what works and what doesn't work, surprise, surprise for me, I need steak, I need chicken, I need turkey, I need pork, bone broth, eggs, things of that nature cruciferous vegetables on the other hand they want me to stay away from like the plague oddly enough i probably wouldn't have vocalized this because i was raised to believe that broccoli was healthy or cauliflower was healthy every single time in my life i've ever eaten those things i've had an upset stomach so most of my diet i mean it's actually very similar to yours um i'm on a fairly carnivorous diet the the, the difference i would be is i've got some nuts and some berries and more of like a foraging kind of thing uh, going on. And then there's stuff that I, I don't know if I'm willing to get rid of. Dairy doesn't seem to upset me that much. We talked about that, about limiting dairy and I limit it, but it doesn't upset me that much. And then there's other stuff that does. And it's kind of now that I've got this roadmap to just pay attention to my body. And if I eat something I don't feel right after, then kind of cut it from the program. But that also gets difficult because stress is one of those things that it's hard to account for. And I will tell you 100% I got this disease from stress. The ulcerative colitis also flares up with stress. 10 times out of 10. So I can eat shitty. And if I'm not stressed, I'm fine. I can have the best diet in the world. If I'm stressed, I'm a, I'm a disaster. 
Yeah, that's, you know, it's, it's amazing where, you know, because obviously, I mean, looking at you, you know, metabolically, you look extremely healthy. I mean, you're lean, you have plenty of muscle mass, you probably can dispose of glucose very easily. Um, you know, but again, there, there, there's a point where, you know, we all, we all can break and we can break differently. I think Amber O'Hearn is, who's another person we've had on the show, uh, talks about that, how people break differently, differently. You know, some people, what they break by getting fat, some people, they break by getting diabetes or heart disease or cancer. Other people break you know, with, with digestive issues and some people break with mental health issues. And so it's kind of interesting how things, the wrong things affect us. And certainly when you are in a stress situation, you're compromised and then you're, then you're, then you're set up for those things. And so it's kind of a one, two, one, two punch, you know, it's a combination rather than, than a, than a, that you, that you can't, can't, you know, seem to duck, which is uh, pretty interesting, but it's, it's very good to see you figuring this stuff out and hopefully you're, you know, you, you you know your journey will serve some other people because I know I think this is this is again I keep I keep stressing the importance of stories and anecdotes as being roadmaps for other people when 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 nothing else is working because you know it's it's uh, you know like I said there's got to be the first guy that does something and when they learn how to do it they show somebody else and you know getting through this hopefully you know hopefully you'll be done with that because I mean you know C diff you know Clostridium difficile is, is I mean it is a, it can be a very deadly disease you get toxic megacolon you can lose your colon from it uh and that's no fun you know and i've, I've talked to people that that's happened to and uh so it's not something i'm surprised the doctor said oh it's no big deal <laughs> because yeah. it, it also it is a big deal and then the recommendations on diet and then society's expectation of what you should eat and shouldn't eat i mean you go through it all the time your vegan posts by the way make me laugh it's my favorite part of instagram <laughs> lately but some of these people, like, you'd think that I was the devil incarnate for having a piece of steak. I don't know where they get their knowledge. I don't know why they believe that. I don't know. I mean, there's so much brainwashing that's happened, but then so much, what I'll say, vitriol or passion that goes into people's diet that they they attack you. It's really hard if you're trying to figure stuff out because you get attacked from all angles and you get misinformation from all angles. Mm. Yeah, you know, it's always interesting to me because, like, for me, it's like, I think what you should really, if you're honest with yourself, ask yourself at the end of the day when it comes to your nutrition is like, are you health, are you healthy, happy, and you know, able to do the things you want to do? And if the answer is yes, and you're honest with yourself, then I guess stay the course and adjust as needed. But like, if you if you are honest with yourself and you're not he- healthy, you're not happy, and you're not able to perform the way you want to perform, um, you know, nutrition is the great first spot to look. Yep. And there's a there's a whole belief, and I love it. Um, the Viome people, one of their one of their taglines, and I'm not paid by them, by the way. It's just I'm a fan of what they what they do. So let me make that clear. But that illness is optional is one of their things. That most illnesses can be you're not stuck with them. And, and I've seen that from some of your posts too, Sean, where these people have had issues for their whole lives, and then they make a couple of changes, and then lo and behold, they're completely different people. Um, a lot of the illnesses we have, I think, are are self-imposed, but to a degree. Well, I think it's and a lot of people don't know. I mean, you know, unfortunately, and I hate to be conspiracy conspiracy theorist, but I'm mean, it's not so much a conspiracy conspiracy theory, but it's just business. I mean, there is a lot of profit to be made in you know, you know sick people. It's just a sad thing that it is, and uh, you know, you wonder how motivated these people are to cure disease, or whether it's you know, there, there's a, there's a lot more profitability in someone 
taking a lifelong medication than there is from somebody that doesn't have this disease anymore, this condition. And so it's it's uh, sometimes hard not to be jaded by that stuff. And when you see people literally, I mean, getting off medications, diseases going away, um, and it's not something hard. It's not like we're saying, you know, there's there's this complicated formula. It's like stop eating crap and do a little exercise, and <laughs> these things go away. You know, but we want to make it complicated. There's people out there telling you, you know, you need to, you know, you have to do this this sort of uh, complicated scenario to be healthy, and it's it's it's. I think it's the opposite. No, I I agree 100. percent And it's like everything these days is going away from health. Like we're encouraged to not exercise. We're encouraged to eat processed food. We're encouraged to. I I'm I'm with you on that. That that I think there's a big business in keeping people sick, keeping people ill, and not having healthy people. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like I said, you know, other than you know the, the folks that benefit, obviously the drug companies, some of the food manufacturers are going to obviously continue to make profit. And there's a lot of money to be made. We've all got to eat. I mean, that's that is a reality in life. You know, all humans will always have to eat. There's no way around that. Now, if they could sell air, I think there's been some shows like that where they had to sell air, like some cartoons. I can't remember. Yep. Maybe I think it was <laughs> the, the, the the what was it? The Lorax. There was a, I saw it with my kids. The Lorax. Yeah, they were selling air because they. You know, the, human, the humans didn't have any more oxygen, so they were able to sell air to people. But, you know, we all have to eat, so there, there's always going to be money to make, be made on food. You know, we don't all have to be sick. I like, I like that illness is optional. Unfortunately, what we're eating is making us sick, and so we have to kind of get away from, you know, what we're eating and go back to something that, that we were eating before that. We've been eating meat for a couple million years, you know, and so that, that, that seems to be a pretty healthy option, you know. <laughs> well, and it's pretty hard to screw up a piece of meat. I mean, if you go get a ribeye steak, it's, it's, it's pretty hard. I mean, it's not doused with pesticides. It's got all the vitamins and minerals and nutrients you need. It's got protein. I mean, you can, it's, it's the one thing you can live off of, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm a testament to that, you know, for whatever, for people that they disbelieve that. But, uh, yeah, it's pretty, uh, pretty interesting how, how this is coming and it's kind of challenging a lot of, uh, sort of the mainstream nutritional dogma, which I think is fun. I think we need to be challenged and, uh, seeing the fight, you know, I just, I just saw, I, I get I get kind of tied in with uh, Jordan Peterson and his daughter Michaela because we're both you know public advocates for the diet and an article just came out in Mother Jones which is a I guess a I, I don't read them but I guess they're kind of a, a progressive magazine but they just they just said if you eat meat it's a far right you know fad like you're a neo Nazi now and so <laughs> <laughs> I mean I just put a post up about it but it's funny to see this stuff how how, how deep of a deep they're willing to go to, you know, defend the status quo and I think, you know, quite honestly to placate their advertisers who don't like the fact that people aren't going to buy their Doritos or their Pringles or drink their Pepsi anymore. Well, it's also it's also funny how you can equate what you eat with a political alliance or like a political allegiance. Like, when did, like, to me it's a ribeye steak or it's a New York steak or it's a strip of bacon. But it says nothing about what I believe or what I don't believe or what I you know, from a political or religious standpoint. And it's funny that that's put on top of it. I got a comment on my Instagram the other day, how something about how I could, how, how could I live with myself knowing that I'm, you know, contributing to the overpopulation of the human society and we're not sustainable population to eat meat and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, this is insane. Like what, what does this have to do with me having a steak? Nothing except some weird political garbage. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's amazing how politicized it's gotten. And there's people that are, you know, they're just vehemently, you know, 
I, for a lack of a better term, brainwashing of this stuff. And, you know, even the, because we've had some of these climate scientists on here, you know, Frank, Frank Mittlauner the other day, who's a, well, really one of the world's leading authorities on greenhouse gases and telling us, you know, this is this is the actual impact of animal agriculture. It's not nothing, but it's nowhere the 51% which cowspiracy comes up with. They make up these numbers and now everybody, everybody buys into it. And so now we have, you know, for the people that care to learn about this stuff, um, you know, the numbers are very different from what has been put out there via this propaganda. And so now you have a, a, a large group of really uneducated people that just kind of take this, for lack of a better term, vegan propaganda at face value and don't question it. And that's why we're seeing policies being made where like companies like Virgin Airlines won't serve meat on their plane, where $20 billion companies like WeWork will not uh, allow their employees to eat meat or they won't pay for it. You know, we're, 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 uh, the army in Finland is now forcing their troops to eat vegetarian twice a week. I mean, this stuff is happening where schools are being made to, to, to go to meatless Mondays. And there's even schools where they have whole vegetarian schools that are being you know, made right now. So these are the things that, that I think, you know, that, that stuff doesn't need to happen. I mean, I think you should have the freedom to choose what you want to eat. You know, there's this, this sort of, uh, anthropomorph anthropomorphism of animals. You know, they're not, animals are not people. I mean, I like animals. I take care of them. I have dogs, I have pets. I care for my animals. At the same time, I realize that, you know, I need to eat them at some point, you know, and I prefer cows because they taste the best and they're most nourish nourishing. But if it were, you know, the other way around, you know, if cows could eat us, they would. <laughs> and right there, your dog would. I mean, it's just, sure. it's just what happens. But the other thing that's funny that you bring that up is it's also, think of the economics behind it. Meat isn't cheap. So what do you want to serve kids? It's cheap, white bread. Mm. It's just the way it goes. I mean, sugar, soy, all that stuff is just super inexpensive. So there's a, I mean, frankly, I think there's a bigger business in it. Yeah, I mean, if you go to if you go to a restaurant, and look at the kids' menu. It's it's AKA the, the cheapest garbage we have. You know, it's uh, you know sometimes they put meat, but it's you know breaded chicken or something crappy nuggets, like that. Yeah. Chicken, <laughs> chicken strips, if you're lucky. You know, <laughs> and, and that's a that's a thing. We have all this. Again, I, I I beat this drum all day long about the, the screwed up nutritional epidemiology you have. We don't look at, you know, we, we don't look at guys like Bobby Maximus or myself or Zach that eat a lot of meat, that exercise, that work out, that care about their health, and then and then do the statistics on us and say, well, what is your health health like? You know, instead yep. they instead they compare. Like I go to a, you know, I, you know, I know you've gone to In and Out and some of these other places and had burgers and Flying Dutchman's and stuff like that. And when I go in there and order that stuff, I'm the only guy in the restaurant doing it. Everybody else is sucking down a Coke and a big pile of fries and some, yep. you know, cherry pie or something like that. And so that, but that's what, that's what everybody gets lumped in. And so when you, when you look at the population of meat eaters that actually are actually concerned about health, I think you find a very different picture and hopefully we'll get some more of that data in the near future. Oh, absolutely. And you said it best. It's usually not the meat that's the problem. It's the stuff that goes along with it. Like. Yeah. You go to McDonald's and McDonald's, I mean, if you want to agree that McDonald's bad for you, we can we can agree on that. But there's a big difference between having like, you know, meat and no bun versus having a bun and a fry and a 64 ounce soda. What what part of that meal is bad for you? Like if anything, the only nutritional substance is coming from the meat. Everything else is just devoid. Yeah. Well, you know, that was one of the first questions I would start getting when I first started a high fat diet was like, well, how do you go out to eat with friends? Isn't that a, a problem? I'm like. No, it's not a problem. I mean, it's like I just don't eat everything on the menu. Like, I mean, it's pretty easy to manipulate a menu and, you know, skew it to the way you want it when you're you're following a high fat diet or a, you know, a carnivore style diet or something like that. 
and like to, it, people just seem to think like you have to have access to the entire menu in order to enjoy a you know a meal with friends. It's like no, you just like you said, go there and skip the sixty four ounce soda. You know, don't get the 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 bun or the roll or something like that. It's like it's not that difficult. Well, and the other thing too is, and and this will relate to fitness a little bit because I've got a lot of people I put on a so called diet, if you will, if I can use that term. And it's funny that the way people look at eating, that it's such a sacrifice if they don't have bread or they don't have French fries or they don't have exactly what you said, everything on the menu. But to give you an example of something that just happened in my life, uh, it was my birthday. I turned 40. Um, and I had a good friend of mine named Viet Pham, who's a world-famous chef. He's been on the Food Network a bunch of times. Uh, he, he won Iron Chef. He's beat Bobby Flay a few times. He cooked me a 50-day aged 60-ounce cowboy ribeye that he had sous vide for 24 hours, and then he finished it over this African wood on the barbecue. It was the most absurdly delicious steak I've ever had. Not one point during eating that steak did I think, I wish I had a piece of bread. I <laughs> wish I had potato chips. I wish I had... And, and it's the same thing if you go to a rib fest and get the best ribs that you know that's won the rib fest the last 10 years... You don't feel like you're missing out. People have this idea that if they don't have everything on the menu that they're losing out. It's just not like that. You can enjoy yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, we, we live in a time right now of variety. We've never had, we've had unprecedented amounts of, you know, you can go to the grocery store and look, there's 30 flavors of ice cream and 25 different types of potato chips and, you know, a hundred different cereals and, you know, it goes on and on and on. And so, but that variety has not been in existence very long in human existence. You know, if we went back even a hundred years, I mean, there might've been 15 people, 20 people, 20 items people would eat most of the time. If we would go back, you know, a thousand years, there might've been four or five foods that people ate every day. And so we've got this sort of uh, expectation. If we don't have every, every last taste, we're, we're missing out on some things. Let me ask you, hey, Bobby, so you just got, I know you just got done competing at the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu's Masters Championship. What's next for you as far as athletics? Do you have any goals that you're working on right now? Is it just staying healthy? Is it just growing your gym? Let us know how we can find you. Um, and then I think there was one other thing I was going to ask. Oh, can you just, for, you know, obviously you've trained all kinds of athletes, including some very high-level folks. Can you give us a general, just, you know, you know, three or four general tips on people who are just getting started and what to what to look for and how to how to approach a, a training program. Yeah, for sure. So in terms of my goals, I'll start with there. I got two big goals for this year. I want to win World Nogi Championships. That's going to happen in December. Uh, because of my background in the UFC, I'm way better at Nogi training than Gi. And for people that don't know what that is, basically the Gi looks like a set of pajamas. It's jujitsu with clothes. Um, I'm better with the no-clothes version. So I want to win the, the no-gi championships in December. And this year I want to deadlift 700 pounds. Don't ask me why. It's just a marker. And one of the things with me, Sean, is I constantly want to push myself every single day and get better every single day, whether that's emotionally, spiritually, physically, whatever it is. So that's the goal I've set for myself. And so that's the two things I'm working on right now. People want to find me, you can find me at Bobby Maximus on my Instagram or my website, which is bobbymaximus.com. In terms of tips for people to train, my slogan, my life slogan is every damn day. And I think the biggest thing people can do, never mind the program, never mind this guy's doing this, this guy's doing that, show up for an hour and work hard every day. And it's shocking how quickly things can happen. Beyond that, eat a really good diet. 
and, and, and good being a relative term, of course, but try to eat healthy food. Pay attention to your recovery. Get eight hours sleep a night. Do some stress relief. And then the fourth thing is don't get sucked into the trap of doing the same thing every day. Vary it up. One day lift heavy. One day go for a run. One day you know, do circuit training. The more variety you get for your average person, the better they're going to get. If you can do those four things, you can make a radical transformation in your life. And I, I've seen people do stuff in six weeks, make an incredible change. That's, That's kind of funny. <laughs> so I, I just have to comment because it's kind of funny. You know, I had a, I remember a guy back when I was in the Air Force, this is about 20 years ago, and he wanted me to write a, write a workout program for him. And so I did. I wrote step one, go to the fucking gym. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was it. I mean, because he, he wasn't doing anything. So I was just like, you know, you got to you got to get in there and do yeah. it. You know, and I think you're absolutely right. You just got to get in there and do the work, whether the gym is your home or whatever. You've got to show up and do that stuff. And, you know, like I said, I'm like you, I, I like to do it every day if I can. And I, and most days I do, you know, barring travel or some other commitment, but I'm, I'm, it's a priority for me. And I think it's an important type of thing, you know, good luck on the 700. I, 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 I pulled 700 the first time when I was 25 and I, and I did the last time I did, it was 45. So I did it for 20 years. Um, I want to see if I can get back up over there, uh, in the near future too. I've just been focusing on some other stuff, but I, I don't know that I can do it at this body weight. I might be too light. You know, I'm only about 240. When I was pulling that much, I was about 280, and so we'll have to see. And you're, you're, I think you're, you're right, you're running around 240 right now too, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I'm actually waking up 227, 228 these days. Okay. But the reason I've chosen the deadlift is it's more important than just a physical goal. It's a complete mindfuck for me. Like there's something about you know when I was uh, deadlifting 585 for three, I couldn't do 600 because it freaked me out. And then finally I broke that plateau and this is the next plateau. So I also like things that um, you'd mentioned like you can't stop working out because it's ingrained in who you are. I like the mental challenges from the gym more than the physical. So this for me is there's something about the number 700 that it scares me a little bit. And so trying to overcome that will be a, a huge moment of growth for me. Yeah, there's not a lot of people walking around that can say they've done that. That's a, that's a big number for sure. Um you know, I think one thing I've found is changing things up. Like I, I seem to switch sports every three or four years just because, you know, you kind of top out and then you're like, okay, I can't get any, you know, the, the, the sort of effort that goes into getting better is infinitely more than, than the progress you can make. And so then I often will switch to sports. It's kind of a cheating type thing because then I suck, but then I get bit, but then I get better <laughs> pretty quickly. And so it's kind of fun because then I can, you know, it, it, it kind of feeds in itself as you're getting better, you're enjoying it more. And so when you switch and, you know, you kind of go from this sport to that sport, you know, assuming you've got some, you know, potential there. I don't, I'm not going to go and be a CrossFit champ. You know I mean? I just, people try to say, well, why don't you do CrossFit? I'm, well, I'm too damn big for CrossFit. You know, it's not going to happen. I mean, I could do it, but I'm not going to win. And that's what I'm looking for. Well, yeah, I, I, I was just going to say, I, I know like it's always interesting. I think when, you know, people are having a hard time figuring out what they want to do or, they look around and say, well, people go to the gym, so I guess that's what I have to do to be healthy. Or they go to the doctor and the doctor says, get to the gym three times a week and they're just doing it to check off the boxes. And it's like, you know, the human body can move in so many different ways and there's so many different potential targets you can kind of place in front of you. Uh, you know, I always kind of answer a question when asked by a coaching client or someone when they want to know like what they should do next. I ask them, well, what do you want to do next? And it's like the answer is probably you know, the answer to doing the training required to meet your potential in any activity is, you know, which activity is going to get you motivated to do it? Which activity is going to get you to get up and, 
you know, like every damn day, go to the gym for an hour, or do this for an hour or something like that. Because I think a lot of times, you know, it's that consistency, it's that routine that gets you in a position to be um, where like Sean, you're at where when you miss a day, you feel more weird than when you go. You know, I see so many people start out where it's like it feels weird for them to go and work out. And then once they kind of get that routine and get that psychological piece to the puzzle in place, it flips on its head. Now it's weird to take a day off. Now I have to try to like, you know, hint around it. You know, I think maybe a recovery day would be good here. <laughs> so it's it's funny how that kind of plays a role in, in people's minds. You said it best. Have some fun. The other thing, I'll tell you one mm -hmm. last story, guys. Teaching a seminar years ago, this guy Martin, and he lives in Montana doesn't have any gym equipment so he starts telling me about his workout program this guy's one of the most fit 40 year olds i've ever met by the way he would chop down trees and he would saw different like log lengths for boxes to jump on and things <laughs> to step on and he would throw these things and the guy was incredibly fit with an axe and a force pull of trees so that's a story that's always stuck with me because you can really do almost anything like as long as you're willing to you're, you're willing to work hard. And, and Sean, you mentioned the Highland Games. Like, go and throw a rock for a day. See how hard that is or carry a rock a mile. Mm -hmm. I mean, fill your backpack with rocks and walk uphill and then dump the rocks. And, and, and so you're lightweight going downhill and run downhill or go for a swim. or a, That's why I said earlier, like, just variety. Have some fun. Do some things. Move your body the way it's meant to be moved. Yeah, when I go on vacation, I don't, you know, I, I, you know, often I'll go out there, I'll go run sprints, go run hills, and I'll find a big rock, and I'll just start throwing rocks, and just throw it, mm -hmm. you know, just like snatch it up in the air, throw it 20 feet in the air, kind of simulating a snatch type motion, and, and those things, I mean, you know, you don't have to have this stuff to, to, to do that stuff, you know, I think, you know, again, I think tools like that Airdyne bike, which we talked about at the beginning, that's hard to replicate with a rock, but <laughs> you can still get, you can still get a pretty damn good hard workout in with, uh, you know, with, with, with very little. Yeah. But on that note, next time you're on vacation, pick up a 20 pound rock and run uphill as hard as you can for a minute. Yeah, see how that true. goes. I mean, you can get, you can get fit with nothing. One of the, one of the summers I, I, I got the most fit I ever got in my life. I didn't have anything. So I did frog hops, I did burpees and I did pull-ups off of a second story balcony where I could just kind of jump up and cut my hands onto the, you know, onto the wood at the bottom of the balcony and away I went and it's all unique throwing some kayaking the odd time and some swimming I was good to go you know you don't need much yeah well I mean I always think about it too it's like you know when when I was in middle school and elementary school it's like no one had to tell us to go do anything specific at recess like they open the doors three times a day for 15 to 30 minutes and roll a few balls out on the pavement and put a fence that's just big enough so we could run a ton but not run out into the street and the you know, kids are moving and having fun and you know exercising without any real real direction it's just like you know i think you give the human body uh the opportunity to move and you know put it in a position where it can uh obviously we're we're at a point now and with society where some folks are you know going to fight an uphill battle just to get to a position to be able to move in a you know in a good way but you just have to start somewhere then and um but yeah i mean i think you go back you look back and you wonder like well at what age does it no longer become fun just to go outside and play it's like, why should that ever get old? <laughs> yeah, or, or to go for a walk. Yeah. Uh -huh. It's funny when they say walking is the best exercise. I had a guy lose 160 pounds in seven months from walking. And he, he's like, what do you mean walk? I'm like, walk everywhere. Yeah. I don't understand. I'm like, when you're on a phone call, you're walking. Mm -hmm. When your kid's crying, you're walking the kid. When you're reading, you're walking. Like, just stand your feet all day. 
and weight just melted off. And it's not that hard, not complicated. Hey, let me let me just throw in one more topic, and then I've got to go. I'm gonna I gotta go do some squats and stuff here in a little bit. <laughs> speaking of training, but hey, I've seen you know, and this is something. I, I mean, I'm sure you're aware of post activation potentiation because I've seen you do it in your training where you do a heavy deadlift and you'll go straight into a box jump and. Um, you know, I'm, I'm probably I'm probably going to hit some of that today. Just not thinking about that. But let me ask you because you've got this one crazy thing that I see that I, I'm trying to. I, I just want to ask you about it. So I've seen you do. I think it's either rack pulls or deadlifts while you're while you seem to be attached to a hip to a hip squat belt. You know, yes, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what's what's. I haven't seen that particular variety before. Before what's going on with that one? Okay, so uh, I got involved with the Westside Barbell guys uh, about a year and a half ago. They're people I really, really respect, and, and whether sure. you hate them or love them, the Westside guys are the strongest gym in the world. I mean, yeah, they, yeah Louis Simmons gets gets results. There's no doubt about it. Right, guys that have done this stuff, and so they've come up with this athletic training platform that it's essentially like a belt squat, and it you wear this belt and it constantly pulls you down. But what this thing does is it takes all the load off your lower back and transfers it to the hips. Westside, I think um, a lot of their ideals are miscommunicated. The single biggest thing they believe in is injury-proofing somebody. Because the longer you stay injury-free, or sorry, the longer you're injury-free, the more you're going to be able to lift. So this thing trains all of the hip muscles, all of the leg muscles that you need to have a great big squat or deadlift, while completely 100% protecting the back. And with this belt pulling down on you, you can't kind of do the, what I call stripper deadlifts, where you pitch your back forward and your legs straighten, because you can't, the the belt doesn't allow you to. So it basically helps put you in a perfect position for lifting. So it allows me to lift heavy regularly and stimulate my nervous system with minimal, uh, what I'll call it minimal risk to my back. And, And after fighting for a number of years, not, not a great back. I mean, it's not terrible, but wrestling's not known to help your back, and either is, uh, you know, jujitsu and fighting. So it's become one of my primary tools. Nice. Okay. I, I suspected it was something along those lines, but I just never seen anyone doing that before. So, and I've been around and seen a lot of stuff over the years. So, yeah, it's it's one of those things, Sean. Like you know, when you talk about anecdotes and tales, this guy deadlifts a thousand pounds. He uses the belt squat. They've got a girl there named Laura Phelps who bench presses 500, deadlifts 500, and uh, squats 500. I don't know if you ever heard of her. Put me on her program. Like whatever she's doing, it's working. And when you're around a bunch of people that are front squatting 700 pounds and deadlifting 1,000 pounds, you kind of do what they do. Yeah. No, that's there's no doubt about it. That's uh, That's true. All right, man. Well, thanks, Bobby. It's been a pleasure. Hopefully, I'll be talking to you in the near future. I'd like to get up to Salt Lake City one day and, and run run a training program with you. So you know, run through your training one day with you because I. Oh, no, you're always you're always welcome. We'd love to have uh, you. We've got yeah, lots of cool toys here. Yeah, I flew in from Montana two days ago. I was up there talking with the U.S. Cattlemen's Association, telling them to eat more meat. Yeah. <laughs> and I stopped in on Salt Lake City, but you know, on a layover, and I thought about thought about you. But uh, yeah, I'll, I'll have to get up there one of these times. All right. Well, thank you guys very much. Yeah, thanks for coming on, Bobby. It was great. All right. Bye. Hey, folks. Thank you for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Uh, We are very excited to have ButcherBox sponsoring the show. A ButcherBox subscription plan uh, that will send you meat. So it's a real kind of hassle-free, don't have to go to the grocery store type of approach that gets you high-quality meat right to your door. Uh, Sean's been using ButcherBox for a while. Sean, why don't you tell us about some of your experiences? 
Yeah, I mean, I've been, you know, basically mostly just going with their custom boxes. I've been going with uh, ribeyes and uh, New York strip steaks. They're all uh, grass-finished, antibiotic-free, hormone-free. They're actually pretty decently marbled for a grass-finished product. I've been enjoying it. Lately, I've been throwing it on the on the uh, in the sous vide and then uh, reverse searing or then searing it up in a cast iron pan. That's been pretty darn tasty. I've enjoyed it. Uh, the consistency I found on pretty much every single steak has been very high, very good and very high. Uh, flavor's been good, and I really enjoyed it. I think uh, you know, looking around at some of the other competitors and some of the other grass finished products that you might get in the store. This is actually a fair bit more economical, and so I think it's a, it's a good value, good quality, and, and, and a very uh, you know enjoyable, flavorful uh, way to get your steaks. Awesome, yeah. And folks, if you want to support the show, go over to ButcherBox, get yourself an order of some high quality meat, and type in the promo code HPO, and you'll get a discount as well as some free bacon, and you can eat that meat knowing that you help keep this podcast going. Thanks again. Back to the show. Hey, folks. Thanks again for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Just a couple quick notes before you leave. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at hpopodcast at gmail.com. That's hpopodcast at gmail.com. We're both also on social media. On Twitter, you can find me at zbitter. That's at Z-B-I-T-T-E-R. And you can find Sean at sbakermd, that's at S-B-A-K-E-R-M-D. We're both also on Instagram, where you can find me at Zach Bitter, that's at Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R. And for Sean, it's at Sean Baker 1967 that's at S-H-A-W-N-B-A-K-E-R-1967. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast.